So there's an old saying that I think we've all heard. It's one that somebody shared with us, whether early in life or consistently throughout life, to help us make sense of what's happening in the world. It's not what you know. It's who you know that matters. Wherever we go, we find that it's true. As we're applying for colleges or for grad school or medical school or law school, we find out that that perfect letter of recommendation, or even maybe the the right last name, can go a lot farther than even great grades would ever take us. It's true in the business world. Just go ask Brick Carpenter to tell you about the Aggie Network. He'll talk your ear off, right? It's why LinkedIn has more than 467 million members right now. We may be eminently qualified for a particular position. We may have the very best skills to offer. We might have some degrees that we can hang on the wall. But often what makes the difference between getting that new job or that promotion is knowing the right person. In this world, it's not what you know. It's who you know that matters. Regardless of how we feel about it, we know that this is true. But I think the thing that may surprise us this morning is that this isn't just a worldly truth. It's a kingdom truth as well. When it comes to the kingdom of God, it's not what you know. It's who you know that matters. It's the truth that a Pharisee named Nicodemus comes face to face with in this late night meeting that we've just heard Leon read about out of John chapter 3. If you have your Bible, let's turn there right now. If you have one of our blue Bibles, it's there in page uh, 887. Before we jump into the conversation that happens between Jesus and Nicodemus, I want to be sure that we stop and pause for a moment and really understand the context of what's happening here. Let's remember that Nicodemus is a high-ranking Pharisee. And the Pharisees were some powerful people in Nicodemus' day. But someone new was coming onto their turf. Someone that they weren't quite sure what to make of. The things he is doing doesn't make sense to them. His actions don't compute. Let's do a quick review of why the Pharisees might be a little bit perplexed by Jesus. So out of nowhere, remember he showed up in the temple and created an uproar. The thing about it was that nobody had really ever heard of Jesus before. But he comes into the temple and he acts like he owns the place. He makes a whip. And he starts to drive money changers and vendors, people that were allowed to be there, out of the temple. And then when he was confronted on his authority to do these things, he says something that nobody understands. Tear this temple down and in three days I will raise it up. 
was this man some kind of lunatic? After this, though, he stayed in town, and miracles began happening. Signs. He begins to teach people about the kingdom. People are healed. Demons are being cast out, and this man even claims to have the authority to forgive sins. None of that concerns the Pharisees all that much. What really disturbs them, though, is what people are beginning to say about this man. What people are beginning to believe about this man, that they're believing in his name. They believe that he is the promised Messiah. This man, though, isn't responding to his great popularity, though, in the way that they expect him to. You see, instead of building a power base, this man who they really can't figure out is just strangely detaching himself from the crowds. He's not getting caught up in their messianic fervor. And so it leaves the Pharisees wondering, Who is this man? What does he want? Is he somebody that can be controlled for our own purposes? Or is he a problem that we're going to have to deal with? They realize that they need to know more. And so they send Nicodemus, one of their best and brightest, to meet with this Jesus of Nazareth in secret under the cover of darkness. After all, they wouldn't want to have a public meeting with him because of the credibility that the people might see in that, that that gave to Jesus. So Nicodemus comes to the place where Jesus is staying, and he begins his conversation with him using very careful language. Very careful words that are also very revealing. Look at chapter 3, verse 2 with me. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Now, to our ears sitting here today, those words sound respectful, even deferential. But let's read between the lines. Nicodemus is calling Jesus a rabbi. He's saying he's a teacher. It's an honorable title. But let's not miss that this is also an implicit rejection of what the crowds are believing about Jesus in their very midst. What they're saying about what Jesus' true identity is. I think it's something that we can be sure that Jesus didn't miss. Despite the signs that he has performed, Nicodemus and the other Pharisees don't believe what the crowds are believing. They don't believe in him. Strange, isn't it? See, the Pharisees and those who believe in Jesus, they see the very same signs, but they come to far different conclusions. 
How do we account for that? How does that even make sense? As I was thinking about that week, this week, it made me think of what would happen to me if I all of a sudden tomorrow found myself driving down the road in China. I would see a lot of road signs, but I would have zero clue about what they were telling me. You see, I'm, I'm missing something very important that would let me be able to interpret the signs and know what they're pointing me to. I don't read Chinese. You see, in the same way, Nicodemus' response to Jesus' signs shows that Nicodemus is missing something. Jesus sees what it is. And he skips the small talk and he gets right to the point. Look to the next verse. Look at verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus' message is all about. It's about the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God into the world. The signs, the miracles, his teaching, all of those things pointed people that had eyes to see not just to the kingdom, but to the identity of the king himself. Seeing the kingdom and believing in the king of that kingdom is an outward and visible sign of something significant that had happened within a person. An amazing work, Jesus says, of the Holy Spirit that he calls being born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it, though. He falls back on his logic and his learning. They've always served him well in the past. How can someone be born again? Nicodemus asks Jesus. No one can enter their mother's womb a second time. Now, in a very polite way, Nicodemus has just told Jesus that he's just said a lot of nonsense. Jesus is patient, though. Like a good teacher, he says the same thing again in another way. Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, are you hearing me? Jesus makes clear that he is talking about a new spiritual birth, not a physical one. It's something that the Holy Spirit does mysteriously within a person. And he compares what the Spirit does in bringing about that new birth to the the movement of the wind. Like the wind, it can't be visibly seen. But just like we have felt the wind on our faces and heard it blowing in our neighborhoods and this front has blown in, the effect of the new birth is easily discerned. But now Nicodemus is just baffled. How can these things be, Jesus? And here it is. The moment has come for Jesus to pierce Nicodemus' pride in order to pursue his heart. Verse 
Look at what he says to him. Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? You see, Nicodemus knows so much. But in this moment, he is coming to grasp that he actually has no understanding of the kingdom of God. Somehow, despite his immense knowledge of Scripture, I mean, this is a man that has forgotten a hundred times more Scripture than this entire room has ever memorized. Despite his respected understanding of the religious tradition of his day, despite all of his learning, all of his study, Jesus is telling him that he's blind to the very thing that he believed he was pursuing with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. All of the great information that he knew about God had not resulted in the transformation that was necessary to bring him into the kingdom of God. When it comes to the kingdom of God, Nicodemus shows us that it's not what we know that matters. For those of us that have been in the church a long time, the story of Nicodemus is one that should make us stop and search our hearts. Today's gospel should make all of us ask a very important question. Have we been born again? Jesus is clear. Unless we've been born again, we cannot enter in to the kingdom of God. It's not optional. Being born again is not some souped-up version of Christianity. It's not the extra deluxe package. It's essential. There are no Christians who have not been born again. Have we been born again? How can we know? If it's not based on kind of our past worship attendance, if it's not based on our ability to recite creeds or know the right prayers, or even based on how many verses of Scripture that we've memorized, how can we know? How can we know the answer to this central, important question. There are two specific moments in kind of my journey to faith as a young boy that really stand out for me in ultra HD 4K color. One is really painful. The other is very surprising. Both were powerful. I'm going to leave the painful one for another day. But the surprising one is my own personal answer to this very question. I was 11 years old and I found myself sitting in the pews of St. Mary's Catholic Church in Temple, Texas, 
two hours up the road on I-35. I was sitting next to my mom. A year earlier, my mom had forced me to start attending Mass with her as her own faith had been rekindled and she had come back to Christ in the midst of that community. When she started making me come back at 10, I was hostile to God. And I certainly didn't have a lot of use for the church. Some of that stemmed from that painful memory from when I was five years old, but most of it really had to do with the apathy that I saw in my parents toward God. Up to that point, uh, they had not had a life that reflected a faith. And if God wasn't important to them, why should he be important to me? So for the next year, I went to services with my mom. And I'm going to confess, I don't remember a single thing from my year in the church. Not one message from the priest. Not a single prayer. Not a single thing. But I remember that night vividly. It was the night that I realized that something had profoundly changed in my 11-year-old heart between me and God. There were two kids at the back of the sanctuary that night. It was some midweek service. I don't know why we were there. They were in the back of the sanctuary while the priest was talking. And they had some Hot Wheels. And these kids were racing these Hot Wheels up and down the pew. Who knows where their parents were? But they were making a racket. It was so loud. It was so distracting. But more than that, in my mind, it was irreverent. I got angry. And my heart blazed against those kids. They shouldn't be racing Hot Wheels in the Lord's house. You don't do that here. It's disrespectful. It dishonors God. And so for the rest of that night, that anger churned in my heart. And finally, when I got home and had a chance to cool down, something hit me. I was struck by the difference in my heart toward God. Something between God and me was very different. God had somehow become important to me. To this day, I look back on that moment in St. Mary's Catholic Church as the night that I know that I had been born again. How can I know that? I think two things, really. You see, I know that what happened in my heart was solely the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. It wasn't anything that I did. It's not anything that I had anything to do with. You see, I hadn't been searching for God. I'd actually been hurt very deeply at the age of five, and I was hostile. I was going to church because I had to, right? And it wasn't because of all the stuff that I learned about God. I wasn't reading the Bible. I wasn't really listening when the priest talked. I wasn't you know, engaged in the prayers. But more importantly, it's through this night that started me on a journey that brought me into a deep, intimate relationship with a person. It brought me into a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, my passion that night led me to do something that I really had never done before. I began reading the Bible. I decided that I need to figure out who 
God was. And within the next year, I had read the Bible through three times, cover to cover, straight through. It brought me to a place where I truly began to know and love Jesus Christ as my Lord and my God. I know that because I began talking to him. I began praying to him. I began to share my life with him and to share the hurts that were in my heart and the joys that were in my life. We had a relationship. I know it was that moment where I knew that I was born again because it was the journey, it started the journey that ushered me in to the presence of the king and into his kingdom. For me, it wasn't that I learned a lot about Jesus that mattered. It's that I came to actually know Christ that did. In the kingdom of God, guys, it's not what we know that matters. It's who you know. It's who you believe in that does. Each one of our stories is different. Some of us are going to have a moment that you can look back to like I can. Some of us won't. Whether or not we have that moment, though, each one of us should have a testimony that bears the marks of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to give us new spiritual birth. Maybe your story is that you grew up in a Christian home and that you've loved and known the Lord Jesus Christ ever since you can remember. That's a beautiful and powerful testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit to give you new spiritual life in Christ before you can even remember. It's a beautiful thing. It's it's what I hope. It's what I pray for Daphne and for Iris and for Silas and for August. I pray that that's their testimony. Our testimonies need to be remembered, but they also need to be shared. So this week, I want to encourage us to do two things. First, we've been journaling. I only have one thing for you to journal on this week. I want you to journal out the testimony of your new birth in Christ. Spend some time. Search your heart. Allow the Lord to bring it back to remembrance and write it out as an act of worship and joy. And then I want you to share that testimony with your family around the Thanksgiving table this week. I mean, Lord knows we've talked about sports enough and uh, we all want to stay away from politics, right? So, uh, you know, (laughs) is there anything really for us, though, to be more thankful about? I mean, if we're going to celebrate the, the holiday of Thanksgiving, from whom, who does all of our, our good and perfect blessings come? And this gift is the most special of all. After we get back this week, I want us to talk to our life groups. Share our testimonies in our life groups. Ask your life group leader to carve out a little time so you can share your testimony in the midst of the people that, that love you. Build them up in that way. And if you've got a life group leader that doesn't want to carve out the time for it, you come talk to me. And if you're really brave, 
you're really brave, you saw what Leslie did earlier. If you're really brave, I would love for us as a community to have the chance to record and capture your testimony so that it can be shared in the midst of community. You see, I've just done it. It's okay. We can all do it. We can all share it. And here's what happens when we share our testimony. The word of testimony that God gives us builds us up. It, it, it builds our faith. And when our faith is built, God gets great glory because it's not a testimony about us. It's not a testimony about what we've done. It's about a testimony of what God has done in us. And it's when we give that testimony that he gets the glory. So what if this week we search our hearts and we don't discover that word of testimony? What if we honestly come to the conclusion that we find ourselves knowing a lot about God, but we can't actually say that we know him? And I want to say today that today's gospel story is a real encouragement if you look in the mirror and the face looking back at you looks, like a, looks a lot like Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus's story is a story about the power of the gospel to change and transform a life. The good news for Nicodemus is that this is not going to be the last time that we see Nicodemus in John's gospel. We get two other glimpses of his life, and they're powerful. A little later, we see Nicodemus standing up against his Pharisee brethren as they're making plans to seize Jesus so that they can kill him. And then, after Jesus is crucified, it's Nicodemus that brings a hundred pounds of spices to tenderly and lovingly prepare Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus, his story, it doesn't end in John chapter 3. Our story doesn't end here today. Nicodemus ultimately enters into the kingdom of God. But we can sure that it, be sure that it's not because of what he knew, but because of who he came to know and love. Jesus Christ, his Lord, and his God. Just as Jesus saw Nicodemus that night, Jesus sees each one of us here today. The king stands ready to invite us and usher us in to his glorious kingdom. And he has good news. Because the path into his kingdom is not one of striving. He's not going to ask you to pick up another book or memorize that verse or change or clean up your life in this way. The good news is so much better than that. Because the pathway into the kingdom is through surrender. 
Jesus calls us to surrender to the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts right now to make us new creations in Him, to be born again in Christ and into His kingdom. Jesus calls us to surrender our sin at the foot of His cross so that He can exchange His righteousness for our stains. And Jesus calls us to surrender our religion for a true relationship with Him. Jesus doesn't need for us to do anything for Him. But He does want us to know Him like the words of that song that we sang a little bit earlier. He wants us to know Him like we know a friend. He wants to have a relationship with us to bring us into His kingdom for all eternity, for His glory. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a king who sees your people. That just as you saw Nicodemus right where he was as he came to you under the cover of darkness, that you see each one of us right where we are this morning. You know what we need. You know what's missing. And Lord, by your spirit, by your power and authority, your desire is that we would see and enter into your kingdom. And so, Lord, as we come to your table today, as we come as an act of surrender to who you are and what you've done for us, as we come to be nourished in your body and blood, may our prayer be, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in our hearts and in our lives as it is in heaven. All of this, Lord, we ask in your precious and powerful name. The name that is above every name. The name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The name of Jesus Christ.